Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. Hello, my love. Hello, Johnny. And hello, everyone. Okay, so here we are again, trying to make my Hegel series a little simpler to understand. Yeah. And I have to say, I was a little bit, big word, dubious <laughs> about the success of this venture. And I'm really excited about where we've come. Yeah. And even more excited this week, having worked with you over the process of trying to take this second of the Christian atheists on Hegel and make it understandable. Right. And I am really, really seriously excited about where we're moving with this. Right. So over the past two episodes, we began a series of discussions here on No Compromise, and they were meant to serve as sort of cliff notes on your Hegel, the good, the bad, and the ugly series that you had done for the Christian Atheists. Yep. And those were episodes, what, 35 through? Through 42. Okay. All right. So 35 through 42. And the feedback that we had received on that series indicated that it was kind of a difficult listen for many in our audience. Yes, and I think even our sharpest mm -hmm. uh, listeners struggled with it. Right. And that, of course, is my fault. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, you are passionate about how important it is to understand Hegel in order to understand the craziness we're experiencing in our world today, right? Right. And I think if we're ever going to have a chance of, of overcoming it, we have to understand the enemy mm -hmm. and uh, approach it with tools and weapons that are properly tuned to the pathologies it has induced. Right, right. And that's what you did this whole series for. And so in our last two No Compromise episodes, we discussed the first episode of your Hegel series, and that's where you gave an introduction to Hegel. Right. Hegel and Western implosion. Right. And that's what we discussed the last two episodes. So if you're joining us just now for the first time, you might want to go back, listen to those last two episodes of No Compromise. They were numbers 21, 22, so that you can catch up with what we're going to discuss today. So you know what occurred to me, Johnny? What, my love? Okay. To try to remember the difference between Kant and Hegel, that's, you know, we discussed that in the last two episodes. Right. Um, you can think of the meaning of their first names. Yes. As you presented this to me this week, I thought, wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Like Immanuel Kant, Immanuel means God with us. Right. And this should and, be very familiar to our Christian listeners. Right. And we know that Kant made room for the transcendent or, or for God. Right. Specifically. Know? He actually yeah. even said that. Yeah. So yep. he was he was that side. And Georg Hegel, Hegel Georg means earth worker. Right. <laughs> and so Hegel kind of felt the earth was everything and there was no transcendent, right? Right. He was yeah. grounded to the earth. Would yep. you say like, like how would you say it? Right. Well, I think last time we said that sort of a Cliff Notes way of thinking of these two philosophers is to think of Kant as the philosopher of transcendence. Right. And Hegel as the philosopher of imminence. Mm -hmm. And those two first names give us very easy ways of, of yeah, remembering like that. Right. Because Kant wants us to remember that there are things beyond humanity. Kind of like what Shakespeare said in Hamlet there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the, the transcendent God. 
is something that Kant explicitly made room for and Hegel tried to take away. Right, right, exactly. Okay, so the Christian Atheist Hegel series was entitled Hegel, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And in the episode following your introductory episode, you talked about the good Hegel. And that's our topic today. Right. And so this is going to be the good Hegel. You begin this episode by reminding the audience of what's going on in the world. That's how you introduce the good Hegel. And it's only gotten worse even since then. Mm -hmm. We seem unable to come to any sort of political consensus in our culture. And that's largely the result of our no longer even agreeing on basic values. Right. And not being able to agree about values, we're certainly not going to be able to agree about ways to achieve values. Right, right. Okay, so I broke this episode into four sections. And these are section one, Hegel's historical context. Section two, idealism versus realism. Section three, what's right or good about Hegel. And then section four was closing remarks. So let's get started with section one, where you talk about the historical context of Hegel. Okay. In fact, throughout the series, you're kind of like peeling away a history onion. Right. Yeah, Yeah, layer upon layer. I hope that our listeners are already sort of getting the sense that in approaching Hegel, maybe the best way to understand what's going on is the progressive unfolding of an onion. Because trying to understand Hegel doesn't happen with me presenting who Hegel is all of a sudden. It's that there's this ongoing progressive understanding about who this person is and how he did philosophy. And you go deeper and deeper and deeper into the onion, but you find layer after layer after layer. Mm -hmm. And the only way to really understand Hegel is to keep presenting the same material again and again and again but at progressively deeper levels of understanding. Right, which in turn chases all of our audience away. Right, (laughs) especially since I try so hard to get it right. And that causes me to try to present way too much in one attempt. Right, right. Instead of allowing this sort of slow, progressive understanding unfolding of the onion that is Hegel. So basically, you have your onion breath. Yeah. <laughs> the onion. Yes. So I keep I keep projecting onion breath, and we keep losing <laughs> listeners. <laughs> okay. So in this section one, Hegel's historical context, uh, you're laying out the nature of what Hegel did, so that we can look at it all objectively, right? Right. I'm trying to present the historical context in which Hegel developed in this first section. Yes. Yeah. And you begin by talking about Immanuel Kant again at this point, because you're introducing Good Hegel. And we met him in our our last episode. Yeah, I was going to say that we did discuss him, so we won't go back to who he was here. But if you'd like more background on him, just listen to those last two episodes. Okay, so back to Kant and Hegel. Okay, so the historical context, would you say, is that Hegel was reacting to Kant, and Kant was reacting to the assault at that time on what it means to be a human being? Yeah. The historical context, we have to remember that Kant came before Hegel, and in many ways was the philosopher of the end of the Enlightenment era. Mm -hmm. And Hegel was reacting in that way to Kant. Yeah. And so the historical progression was that in the Enlightenment, 
Yeah, I was I was going to say you said that Kant was seeing that science had emerged at the end of the medieval period. Is that what you were going to do? Take it back to that. Right. Right. Go ahead. Okay. To set the historical stage, we need to look at what immediately preceded all of this. And long term, going all the way back to the to Jesus and moving forward, we had the medieval period. Mm-hmm. And that was dominated by the church for the most part, medieval period. So all the intellectuals of that period were members of the church. And then around the 1400s, we have the Renaissance and Reformation era mm-hmm. and the rediscovery of the knowledge of the ancient world. And there began to be a shift in the culture away from intellectuals being centered in the church towards a more secular view. And at the very end of the Renaissance and Reformation era, we have, okay, transitioning in about the 1700s to the period called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment really is characterized very heavily by the emergence of the scientific revolution. And in the scientific revolution, things began to change really radically because we began to look at humankind differently. Beginning with Bacon and Newton, science began to look at the world as if it were merely a mechanism, a machine. Mm -hmm. And that attitude slowly transferred from the natural world to man himself. And we can even understand why, right? And we began to think about humankind, about man, quite differently. And we began to think that even man himself is just a part of nature, nothing special like the Greeks viewed humankind. And in a way, that was the beginning of the slip away from the biblical view of humanity as embodying the the spark of the divine, that we were rational in some unique and special way and set apart from the rest of creation. And we began to look then at the possibility that mankind himself was merely a machine. And that becomes very important as we move forward. Okay. Okay. So to reiterate and sum up, at the end of the medieval period and through the Enlightenment, the scientific method emerged as a very powerful way of understanding the world. Mm -hmm. And one of the consequences Mm -hmm. of the emerging scientific outlook was that we began to look at the world in a mechanistic way. And we started to think, okay, everything is just a function of mechanism. Or everything is just a machine. Everything is just a machine. Right. If we could understand the machine. And if we can just understand the parts of the machine and the processes of the machine, we can understand everything. And humans were just a machine, right? Right. And so we began to look at human beings in that same way. Right. So that that sort of sets the historical background. And we find that Kant was at the end of the Enlightenment period. But would you say that Kant made room for ethics, human love, God, in the face of this, this scientific assault? Yes. And Hegel renews the attack on the transcendent for which Kant had made room, right? Right. Exactly right. Science, as it was emerging in the Enlightenment period, Mm -hmm. was making the case that human beings are just another deterministic machine in the world. 
Human beings so, are not free. Yeah, we so, feel ourselves free, but right. that's an illusion. Right. Kant said no. And that was his great insight. His claim was that no matter how strong and powerful scientific method may be, mm-hmm. it can never take away from us mm-hmm. the rational conclusion that we may very well be free individuals and that belief in a God, belief in human freedom, yeah. and the human capacity to love and the human capacity for ethics, for doing the right thing. That's, that's what Kant made room for, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. In the face of science, he restored the possibility of faith mm-hmm. in the transcendent. Okay. So at this point in your episode, you refer to your graduate advisor's book. So l- l- before you say anything, let me real quick just say the book's name and your graduate advisor's name, okay? Mm-hmm. So it's Hegel's Dialectical Logic, and it's by Hermano Benchavenga. Okay, so why is Benchavenga's view important enough that you actually make mention of it in that episode? Oh, my, because <laughs> I studied with him mm-hmm. Kant, Hegel, Marx, and his views are based on deep and profound study of the primary works of these philosophers. And I don't mean tangential study. I mean deep <laughs> and comprehensive study of the material. Right. Hermano was an absolutely amazing, brilliant man. Yeah. I, I can only think of the opportunity to study with him this material as God sent and God yeah. ordained. Yeah. Because it helped me to understand and see the world more clearly with the assistance of someone whose mind and sharpness was just unparalleled. Right. So so basically he was very well versed in Hegel and someone who can talk intelligently about him. Right. 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 Okay. Sorry, you want to read some quoted parts from that you had included in the episode. You want to read some of his quotes, right? Uh, So this whole paragraph is really worth reading, but I want to concentrate our attention on the final sentence of what Professor Benchavenga said. Mm -hmm. Hegel's dialectical logic provided an enormously pliable, efficient, and seductive instrument that promised to forever bankrupt that effort, that is, the Kantian effort, and disqualify all value talk as pathetic, wishful thinking. So Kant fought the battle for the rationality of the belief in the transcendent, for the rationality of belief in human freedom, for human ethics that was being undermined by the scientific deterministic view. Okay, so that was Kant. Right. And Hegel took up the battle again to undermine all of those things. So to summarize this section then, Hegel undermined the Western world to the point that Benchavenga said people don't even, they're not even able to think any other way anymore. Yeah, and that's that next paragraph. So Benchavenga said this about the seductive instrument that he talked about in that last paragraph. Mm -hmm. He said, despite the current Anglo-Saxon amnesia about Hegel, that is almost nobody, as I said repeatedly, almost nobody reads Hegel anymore, and almost nobody understands Hegel, even among those who read him. Right. So despite the current Anglo-Saxon amnesia about Hegel, and the turning of him into a stereotypical and somewhat outdated polemical target on the European continent, Hegel's logic has never enjoyed greater success. Yeah. 
both among intellectuals and in the general population. People don't seem to be able to think any other way. Indeed, fragments of dialectical logic have been reinvented constantly, under different names, of mm -hmm. course. And so the case that Professor Benchevenga is making here yeah. is that Hegelianism, yeah. and in particular, Hegelian logic, has permeated our culture at all levels right. and has become almost the exclusive way in which we think today. Right. right. That is why it is so dangerous. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so then at this point in section one, you we go back to you and you say that for Hegel, it explained everything, is everything, which is why his philosophy is known as absolute idealism. Yes. Okay, so that's going to be our transition to section two, where you talk about idealism versus realism. Why don't we sum up this historical context of Hegel's section with an example? Can you give us an example? The two, like two ways to think of Kant's way and Hegel's way. Okay, let's try this. Let's suppose you met me when I was two years old, and then somehow or other we managed to send you forward in time to today, mm -hmm. and someone introduced you to me today and said, This is John Wise, the same John Wise you met 54 years ago <laughs> as a two year old. Right. In what way can this be the same thing? In what way can John Wise at two years old be the same as John Wise at 56 years old? Well, I can tell you because you still act like a two-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. You don't at all. <laughs> that, that actually may be true. <laughs> no, it's not true. <laughs> this is the problem of identity through time. Okay. Mm -hmm. And there are two possible ways of dealing with this issue. Either something is the same in the two-year-old that is still the same now. So we have this sort of unchanged substance that emerged at some point, say, if you're a, you know, a conservative who yeah. thinks of life beginning at conception, mm -hmm. there was some sort of being that came into existence and then was born and became a two-year-old. And now that same substance, that same thing has gone through all of these changes and is now 56 years old, mm -hmm. but it is the same substance. Right. That is the sort of traditional view of a human being that has gone through changes, but exists as a real, substantial, transcendent reality. Right. This is something that Kant made room for. Okay. The okay. idea that we can be this sort of thing that changes through time, but nevertheless exists as a real substantive existence, a thing, a human being. Hegel says, no, all that a human being is, is the process of change itself. And so when we talk about the John Wise at two, yeah. And the John Wise at 56, they are two different things. Right. And yet, what unites them? The story that we tell from John Wise at two right. to John Wise at 56. And what John Wise is, is nothing more than the process of change from the two-year-old to the 56-year-old. That is the philosopher of imminence. You are nothing more than your story. Your story is you. You are your story. 
and there is no underlying substance that unites the two. In many ways, this is the distinction between Kant and Hegel. Kant allows for the human being to be something infinitely more than that which we can understand. But Hegel reduces everything to the pure rational flow. And we'll deal with Kant and Hegel in the next section, I suppose. Yep. Okay. All right. So let's move on to section two of your episode, which is where you contrast realism and idealism. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to quote you here, John. You say in the episode that realism is the idea that there is being outside of consciousness and to which rationality must simply conform. So what does being outside of consciousness and <laughs> rationality to conform mean? <laughs> okay. So I guess typically of me, I've, I've overblown my language. <laughs> and it's probably worth stepping back from that for a bit and looking at the various characterizations that we need to be clear about in order to understand what the heck I'm talking about in this section. Yeah. So let's start, as you suggested, with realism. Okay. Primarily, realism is the idea that what we encounter around us is, in fact, real. Mm -hmm. So we get up in the morning, we drive away in our cars to work. We're real. The car is real. Our job is real. All the world around us is real. Right. And in that sense, most people are realists, whether they ever understand themselves metaphysically, that, that they're adopting a metaphysics doesn't matter. Right. Human beings are essentially realists. Yeah. We look at the world around us as if it is the real thing. Right. And usually included in that, in fact, pretty much always included in that, is the idea that there are two kinds of reality. There's the material reality around us, matter, things, yeah. and there are minds. Like When we talk about other people, we think of them as thinking beings like ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so it was Rene Descartes who essentially divided human beings and matter into two different substances uh -huh. so that there are thinking things and material things, right? And this is sort of the, the realistic view that almost all of human history yeah. has adopted up through the medieval period and even into the Enlightenment period. Okay. But as science began to mature, yeah. that started to be questioned in scientific terms. Okay. Because as we just talked about in the history of science, science began to look at the world around us and said to itself, well, why should we think that there's anything special about human beings? Maybe they are just material like everything else. I see. So from realism emerged a, a sort of more radical version of realism that we call materialism. Okay. And materialism tells us that all that exists is matter, that human beings can be reduced to matter. Right. And so the idea by someone like Descartes that there is such a thing as a thinking substance is to materialism, scientific materialism, ridiculous. Okay. And so they want to reduce everything to matter, including all of our thoughts, all of our emotions, and certainly to get rid of the notion that there is some sort of transcendent reality. Yeah to which uh, those things correspond. Okay. 
So that is realism and materialism. And we see that materialism becomes embodied in the scientific method during the Enlightenment. Okay. And we see how that threatened the traditional view of humankind. Right. Okay. That's a really good explanation. So now I'm going to quote you again, but this time I'm going to quote you on idealism. You say, idealism, by contrast, believes that what is really real is the rational or the subjective or the non-material. So then what does that mean, John? Again, so <laughs> so my, my language is too technical, too dense. Mm -hmm. So let's expand it. And let's piggyback off of what we just said okay. about materialism and realism and, and say, okay, idealism, like materialism, is a departure from realism. Because whereas Descartes said there are two types of substance in, in the realist view, yeah. minds and bodies, scientific materialism privileges material, mm -hmm. the material reality, and undermines the mind, right? The thinking thing of okay. Descartes. Idealism does precisely the opposite. It privileges the mind part and undermines the material part. And maybe that's the best way to understand idealism as the first skin of the onion, because mm -hmm. there's a lot more there to talk about. But in between the two, still exists this notion of realism that combines in its own way both insights, the idealist and the materialist. Because as Descartes said, both of these things make up the reality that we encounter. Yeah. And Immanuel Kant, seeing that the Enlightenment science was threatening the unique status of human beings as rational creatures, as ethical beings, mm -hmm wanted to reestablish the possibility that we could believe in that vision without throwing away science. And so in that sense, I say that what Kant did was to confront the threat by Enlightenment science mm -hmm. that was undermining the unique status of human beings as rational and ethical creatures and find philosophical room to believe that. And along with that, he actually said he made room for God as well, for belief in God. Okay. But that wasn't his primary focus. And Hegel looked at what Kant did and said, wait a second, what you're telling us, Immanuel Kant, is that reason can't know everything. And Hegel was threatened by that. Mm -hmm. And so Hegel renewed the threat that Kant tried to overcome in the scientific rationalist view by a new rationalist view adopted by Hegel that was an idealist rather than a materialist threat. Okay. So that, I think, situates us pretty well to understand the historical context and the distinctions between idealism and realism. Right. That's very good. Okay. Now I'm going to quote you one last time in this section. Um, you say, by collapsing metaphysics into logic, this makes his idealism absolute. So what in the world is collapsing metaphysics into logic and making abs idealism absolute? What is all of that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess again. again, I have to confess <laughs> yes, to this is your third time, being three, way too dense. Yeah, three times and you're out. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. 
So the idea here is that Hegel, seeing Kant destroying the possibility of absolute knowledge, destroying the ability to, as the scientific revolution said, to be able to fully comprehend and understand the world around us. Mm-hmm. Hegel said, oh no, we can't lose that. We have to hold on to that as the ideal of the enlightenment. And the best way to do that is not the materialist way, but the idealist way. Okay. And so Hegel said, what is supreme is mind. Mm-hmm. And it is absolute idealism because Hegel said that is all that exists, right? Mm-hmm. It's not the balanced view of Kant that there are minds and bodies. It is that everything must be reduced to mind mm. for Hegel. Okay. And that is the idea of what he calls spirit. Because spirit for him is the absolute taking over of reality by mind. And that's what I mean when I say he collapses Absolutely. metaphysics okay. into epistemology. Okay, well, that makes sense. He, he actually yeah. says everything around us is just a function of mind, mm-hmm. absolute mind. There okay. is no material reality. Okay. All right. That makes a lot of sense. All right, John. So give us like the point of this section. Okay. At, at one point towards the end of this section of the Christian Atheist episode, yeah, I say, I have always thought that the greatest argument against Hegel is that his metaphysics cannot be lived. Mm-hmm. We cannot live as though the world around us is simply reason. Mm -hmm. We encounter it as a real thing. We encounter people as real substantial beings. We encounter a can of soda as something we can grasp that's independent of us, that we can open up and drink, and not as rationality. So. By default, we human beings live as realists. And there's something to be said for that fact. If we cannot live the metaphysics, in what sense is that metaphysics useful to us or true? And of course, then I was delighted to find in C.S. Lewis a quote that exactly corresponds to my own sentiments on this. Lewis says in Surprised by Joy, chapter 14, which, by the way, is available to all of our listeners because we've read it on our Simple Gifts podcast. And if you go to YouTube, you can get it in a playlist and hear it from chapter one all, all the way through, through to the it. end. Yeah. And this is, this is right before he gives his conversion narrative. Right. He says this, idealism can be talked and even felt. It cannot be lived. And a metaphysics that can't be lived doesn't make much sense for human beings who are trying to live in this world. Not to mention the fact that, like materialism, it is putting the part for the whole. Another no-compromise theme. Right, right. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose 
Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.